0: Good morning. 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 Listen to the word of the Lord and what he has for us this morning. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwelling places. And the city shall be rebuilt on its ruin, and the palace shall stand on its rightful place. And from them shall proceed thanksgiving. And the voice of those who make merry. And I will multiply them, and they shall not be diminished. I will also honor them, and they shall not be insignificant. Their children also shall be as formerly, and the congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all their oppressors. And their leader shall be one of them, and their ruler shall come forth from their midst, and I will bring him near. And he shall approach me. For who would dare to risk his life to approach me, declares the Lord. Behold the tempest of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a sweeping tempest. It will burst on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed, until he has accomplished the intent of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand this. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words to us. Thank you for your faithfulness and your consistent testimony over generations and decades and millennia that uh, give us hope. You will keep your word. You will accomplish what you set out to do. Thank you. Encourage our hearts today by your Spirit. And as our, our brother preaches to us, we pray that you would stir up our hearts, increase our faith, and by grace may we do the works that you've given us to do. Amen.
1: Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving a couple of days after. Hope your your weekend and your time with families has been marvelous. If I asked you the, the first word that... Uh, that comes into your mind when you hear the word thankfulness, I'm assuming it would not be the word judgment. So uh, considering what we've seen thus far in the book of Jeremiah, some of you may be wondering why why I'm continuing with this series on the Sunday after Thanksgiving rather than doing a special message. Well, the fact is it would be hard to come up with a passage that gives us more to be grateful to God for Uh, than the passage that's right here in front of us. This passage zeroes in on the point of all of God's dealings with His covenant people, Israel and Judah, including His works of judgment that were directed toward them. And that same marvelous point or purpose applies to every person in every generation of mankind who is made a child of God through faith, in God's promises. Promises that, that find their perfect fulfillment, their perfect fulfillment in Christ alone. Last week in the first half of chapter 30, God drew a critical distinction between two very different outcomes of His work of judgment. In verse 11, speaking to the descendants of Jacob, He said, For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. I am with you to save you, for I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only you I will not destroy completely, but I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. God declares in that verse that His judgment against the nations would destroy them completely, but His judgment against His people would not destroy, but would chastise and would save now i think we'd all agree those are those are very different outcomes of god's judgment god declared then that the wound that he had inflicted on his people because of their sin was an incurable wound there was absolutely nothing that that they or anyone else on earth could do to cure that wound but in the last verse of that passage, Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 17, God said, "He would heal their incurable wound. He would restore his people to health." Verse 18 then begins another of many "Thus says the Lord" passages in this book. And that passage, this "Thus says the Lord" passage continues in through chapter 31, verse 1. And that's why the reading included that verse. The passage expands on the beautiful promise of healing and restoration from the previous verse. Verse 18 says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwelling places. And the city shall be rebuilt on its ruin, and the palace will stand on its rightful place. Now the phrase, restore the fortunes of, literally means to return from captivity or exile. And that which God promises to bring back from exile are the tents of Jacob. Throughout Jeremiah, we've said this before, but throughout Jeremiah, when God refers to Jacob, He's, he's talking about people who descended from all twelve of the sons of Jacob. In other words, he's referring to both groups of Jacob's descendants that had been divided into two peoples ever since the end of the reign of King Solomon. The house of Israel in the north, the house of Judah in the south. And because the northern tribes known as the house of Israel have never been restored back to the land of promise, that means that most of the families that descended from Jacob have never to this very day seen this promise fulfilled. In the rest of verse 18, God's emphasis is on the place to which uh, He will restore Jacob. He says, I will have compassion on His dwelling places. The city will be rebuilt on its ruin and the palace will stand on its rightful place. Now in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 1 and verse 19, the exact same word that's translated palace here refers to the temple of Yahweh that King Solomon built in Jerusalem. This verse, Jeremiah 3018, says, And the palace, I believe meaning the temple, will stand on its rightful place. And what does that mean? Its rightful place. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, about a thousand years before these words were written, as the Israelites were preparing to cross the Jordan River into the land of promise after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God commanded them and He told them that when they came into that land, they were to destroy all of the local altars that the Canaanites had built on high places and under green trees all over the land, places in which they worshipped their false gods. Instead of worshipping the true God at those places, God commanded Israel instead to come at appointed times each year to a central sanctuary, to the place in which He would choose to dwell in their midst. In Deuteronomy 12, verse 5, God said, But you, Israel, you shall seek the Lord at the place which Yahweh your God shall choose from all your tribes to establish His name there for His dwelling. There you shall come. Now by Jeremiah's day, there was there was no question about where that place of God's own choosing resided. It was the temple of Yahweh in the city Of Jerusalem. God's promise here in verse 18 is that the city of Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar was about to destroy would be rebuilt on its ruin. And that the temple that Nebuchadnezzar was about to bring down would once again stand on its rightful place. The temple in Jerusalem was in fact rebuilt by the Judahites whom God brought back out of captivity in Babylon, back to Jerusalem in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, in the days of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. That same temple was renovated by King Herod around 20 B.C. But that same temple was also destroyed with extreme prejudice by the romans in 70 ad and it has never been rebuilt since from 70 ad to the present that temple has not existed except for for just the the rubble that remained and as i've already said there has never been a time there has never been a time when the descendants from the ten northern tribes of Israel that were taken into captivity by Assyria have returned to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple in its rightful place. So, if you take the promise here in Jeremiah 30.18 to mean anything like what Jeremiah's audience would have understood it to mean, it hasn't been fulfilled yet. Now, I believe... It will be fulfilled very directly during a coming thousand year reign of Christ that's foretold in Revelation chapter 20. Now that's not a central tenet of the Christian faith, and it's perfectly fine if you disagree with me about that understanding of things to come, and I mean that. Many faithful and diligent students of God's Word, including some who worship together in this room, Disagree with me about that. And beloved, let's not divide the church over non-essentials. One of the things I love about this church is that there's quite a diversity of of understandings on non-essential points of faith. And we still worship together and minister together and love each other. That's how God would have it. So let's stay there. But one of the problems with having preachers is that we tend to favor our own understanding of the Bible instead of somebody else's so you're kind of stuck with having to hear, hear me out on this. Now, I believe that descendants from all of the tribes of Jacob, along with people from every tribe and tongue and nation, will live in that earthly millennial kingdom of Messiah. But even that glorious kingdom will still be an imperfect and temporary fulfillment of these promises, because the curse will not yet have been undone in in the time of that kingdom, even when the perfect Son of God and Son of Man has been ruling in righteousness and justice on the throne of David and over all the nations for a thousand years, many men will still reject Him and oppose Him and His people." Revelation 20 verse 9 speaks of a final militant rebellion by unbelieving mankind when they gather themselves together into a massive army and they surround, quote, the camp of the saints and the beloved city. God's entire narrative of that battle that ensues at that point is presented in part of one verse. It says, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. It's the shortest battle in the history of the world and the most decisive. Everyone who will die in that instant, together with all who have rejected God in every age of mankind, will then... Be judged at the great white throne judgment of Jesus that's prophesied at the end of that same chapter, Revelation 20, and all of those who persisted in unbelief will receive the judgment of eternal separation from the presence of God and from the glory of His power forever in the place called hell. Place of fire and brimstone. That may not be popular, but that's what the Bible declares. And then, after that final judgment of unsaved, will come the perfect and eternal fulfillment of God's promises of restoration. Jesus will bring down from heaven to earth the heavenly city, New Jerusalem, the place that He went to prepare for us so that where He is, there we might be also. John 14. And we'll be there with Him forever. And there won't be a physical temple in that place because the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb will be its temple. The temple is the dwelling place of God in the midst of His people. The whole place will be the dwelling place of God in the midst of His people. And the the one to whom we will come is, is Yahweh Himself. Face to face. No barriers, no veils, no inner sanctuaries, just absolute access to the presence of almighty God all the time in verses 19 and 20 of jeremiah 30 god promises marvelous blessing to all those whom he will return to the rebuilt city and i believe first in the, the first iteration of this the first view of this he's speaking of the city and the temple during the millennial reign of christ which was We saw, by the way, in our worship this morning in Isaiah 65, I believe we saw a collapsed presentation of the temporary kingdom and the final eternal kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, right there in one passage. And I think that's called prophetic telescope. It's like looking at a mountain range through a telescope, and when you see the mountains in the distance, they look really close together. But when you get up to them, there may be a 100 miles between them. In this case, there are a whole lot of years between them, but listen to this. Jeremiah 30 verses 19 and 20. And from them, from the, from the rebuilt city and the temple that's in its, the temple in its rightful place, from them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. And I will multiply them and they will not be diminished. I will also honor them and they will not be insignificant. Their children also shall be as formerly, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all their oppressors. The blessedness that God's people will experience in that place will fill that city with thanksgiving and celebration. His people will be multiplied and will never diminish. The people of Jacob... Who had experienced depression for most of their existence will finally receive the honor and significance that God had promised to them long before. And when I say long before, I'm going back again to Deuteronomy, a thousand years earlier. Deuteronomy 26, God said verses 18 and 19, and Yahweh has declared today, has declared you to be His people, a treasured possession as He promised you, and that you should keep all His commandments, and that He shall set you high above all nations which He has made for praise, fame, and honor, and that you shall be a consecrated people to Yahweh your God just as He has spoken. Beloved, God's promises to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will find their perfect fulfillment only in, Jesus Christ. in Romans 9, verse 8, Paul says, It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Galatians 3 tells us that those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. That same chapter tells us that all who are of the faith of Abraham are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul says, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Guys, you don't want to be, you don't want to be limited to being an heir according to the flesh. You want to be an heir according to promise. That lasts forever. If you belong to Christ through faith in Him, you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise, and you will be there. No matter where you came from, you will be there with the restored people, with the congregation of the living God in the restored place experiencing the long promised blessings from the hand of God that Jeremiah writes about right here in Jeremiah 30 verses 18 to 20. And in the next verse, verse 21, God speaks of the ruler who will be over that marvelous kingdom. In the first half of verse 21, God says, and this, this verse is so loaded, it's just beyond, it's beyond imagining. In the first half of verse 21, God says, And their leader shall be one of them, and their ruler shall come forth from their midst. Now hundreds of, I'm gonna to go to Deuteronomy again, hundreds of years before Israel ever had their first human king, God told them in Deuteronomy 17, what He would require of their kings, and among other requirements, God told the Israelites that they must not put a foreigner over themselves who was not one of their own countrymen, one of their own brothers. Deuteronomy 17:15 makes that very clear. It is no small matter that Jesus is fully man, made like us over whom He will reign, and it is no small matter that he is a Jew. According to the flesh, the perfect, long-promised son of God and king of Israel is himself an Israelite, just as God demanded of his kings. He's a kindred king. He's a kindred king. If you heard, hear the phrase next of kin, you understand what I'm talking about. And he's also a worthy priest. In the second half of the same verse, Jeremiah 30, verse 21, God said something extraordinary about this this kindred king that he's going to raise up over his people when he restores them to the land. He says, and I will bring him near and he will approach me for who would dare to risk his life to approach me, declares Yahweh. What's the answer to that question? Who would dare to risk his life to approach me? Year after year in Israel's experience, first at the tabernacle, then at the temple, who was it that risked his life each year to come near to the presence of Yahweh into the very Holy of Holies where the Shekinah glory of God dwelled in the midst of His people? It was the high priest. Once each year on the Day of Atonement, you can look in Leviticus 16, the Levitical priest who held the office of high priest was the only person that God ever allowed to set foot inside the Holy of Holies after it was consecrated, that place in which His glory dwelt. Before the high priest came into that chamber, before he opened that veil and stepped into that chamber each year, he had to take a firepan full of burning coals from the altar of incense that was just outside of that, of that room, And he had to carry that fire pan of burning coals in front of him so that the smoke of the incense would go up in front of his face and obscure his view of the glory of God lest he die. Does that sound like you're risking your life? Because if that priest beheld even that very limited representation of the glory of God with his bare eyes, he would die instantly. Jewish tradition had it that a rope was tied around the, the ankle of the high priest so that if, if he messed up the procedure and and was stricken dead inside the chamber they could drag him out without any, anyone else incurring the same outcome the high priest risked his life to draw near to the presence of God but now in this verse God speaks of one whom he will raise up as ruler over his people at the time of the promised restoration. And he says that he will bring that ruler near to himself. Instead of coming in fear for his life, he will be welcomed with open arms into the presence of God. Now bear in mind, guys, that under the law of Moses, kings in Israel were not allowed to become priests. And priests were not allowed to become kings. Priests had to come from the priestly line of Levi, from the line of Aaron, the high priest. And because they were set apart by God to serve the priestly function, no Levite was ever allowed to be a king. In fact, the king answered to the priest. Read Deuteronomy 17. But now, God speaks of a man who will fulfill the roles of both kindred king and worthy priest. Read Zechariah chapter 6. It talks about the righteous branch, the high priest who would be crowned as king and who would bring together into one the two roles of king and priest. Hebrews 10 speaks of the unbreakable connection between Christ's access to God and our access God. Listen as I read Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 23. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. That means That means in the full assurance that our faith in Him provides. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. God has made Christ's perfect access our perfect access by putting us in Him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And if you're in Christ, beloved, you come to the Father with no barriers. Verse 22 of Jeremiah brings us to the glorious end point of all the precious and magnificent promises that God is making here to the house of Israel and the house of Judah and all who trust in God's promises. I'll come back to verse 22 shortly, so bear with me. And I should say ultimately to all who trust in God's promises. The last two verses of Jeremiah 30 speak again of judgment. Right at the end of this beautiful passage that distills so many of God's glorious promises into so few verses, God speaks yet again of judgment. And we might think, okay God, can't we just bask in the promise of restoration and blessing for a while without you throwing judgment back into the mix. But I'm convinced there's a marvelous reason that verses 23 and 24 are right here where we find them. Listen to those verses. Behold the tempest of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth. A sweeping tempest. It will burst on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until He has performed and until He has carried out the purposes of His heart. In the last days, you will understand this. Now that same essential declaration about a coming tempest of Yahweh, a stormy judgment that will continue until the purposes of God's heart are accomplished, that same declaration already showed up in Jeremiah 23, verses 19 and 20. And here are those two verses. I'm going to put put both of them up here. Jeremiah 30, 23 and 24, Jeremiah 23, 19 and 20. And match up the parts. I gave you some colors to help. Behold, the storm of Yahweh has gone forth in wrath, even a whirling tempest. It will swirl down on the head of the wicked. The anger of Yahweh will not turn back until He has performed and carried out the purposes of His heart. In the last days, you will clearly understand it. Now in both passages, the stormy judgment won't end until God has accomplished the purposes for which He brought it. And when He says the purposes of His heart, that's a fairly unusual way of putting it. He's going to talk later about that which He does with His whole heart and His whole soul in Jeremiah chapter 32. In both those passages, when His purposes, the purposes of God's heart are fulfilled, the judgment, the storm, will end. Simple enough? Okay, so what are those purposes? Well, if you look at what comes immediately after those verses... In both passages, the purpose that God closely associates with the storm is the return and restoration of His people to Himself. The very next thing that God says in chapter 23 after that tempest of the Lord passage is, listen, is that if the prophets of Israel and Judah had, quote, stood in My counsel, they would have announced My words to My people and they would have turned them back from their evil way, and from the evil of their deeds. And then just a few verses later, in verse 29 of chapter 23, God says, is not My Word like fire? And like a hammer which shatters a rock? I believe that God is saying that if the prophets in Judah had spoken rightly what God had declared, this stormy judgment would have been unnecessary. Because God's word burns away dross like a refiner's fire and it breaks the will of man like a hammer. That's what the judgment was purposed by God to accomplish, to turn the hearts of His people back from their evil way to Him. And we shouldn't miss the fact that when God's people have the courage to say what God says... In His Word, to those who are living in rebellion against Him, that living and active Word may be used by God in place of painful earthly judgment. His Word may accomplish the turning of hearts without the need for the judgment. Does that make it gracious or ungracious for us to speak the truth of God in love? Now, for those who reject God's word and God's judgments to their final breath, both his word and his judgments will serve to seal their condemnation. I'm talking about the temporal judgments. Both will seal their eternal condemnation. But for those whom God has decreed to save and restore, however you understand that comes about, both the Word of God and the earthly judgments of God are used by God to turn our rebellious hearts back to Him. Both the Word and the judgments are used by God to turn our rebellious hearts back to Him. So both are gracious. The restorative purpose of God's painful judgment against Israel and Judah that He calls the tempest of the Lord that restorative purpose is even clearer here in chapter 30 than it is in chapter 23. The, the very next verse after the Tempest of the Lord passage in verse 30, in chapter 30, is the first verse of chapter 31. Now let me read, I'm going to read from 3022 to 311, so you can see this in context a little. 30, verse 22, "...and you shall be My people, and I will be your God." Behold the tempest of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a sweeping tempest. It will burst on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until He is performed, until He has accomplished the intent of His heart. In the latter days, you will understand this. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel." and they shall be My people. At that time. At what time? At the time Jeremiah just spoke of in the verse just before that. In the latter days, when you will understand this. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they will be My people. Now, I hope you notice the connection, the similarity between thirty-one-one and 30.22. 30.22, and you shall be My people and I will be your God. 31.1, at that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be My people. Sandwiched between those two declarations are the two verses about the tempest of the Lord. The judgment which will end when God's purpose for the tempest has been accomplished. So what's the purpose of the tempest? When Yahweh has returned the hearts of His people to Himself and has regathered all the families of Israel back to the land that He rebuilt, back to the place that He has prepared for them, when He is the God of all the families of Israel and they are His people, then the purpose, the point of His earthly judgments directed toward them will have been accomplished. That's the point of the tempest of the Lord. And that, beloved, is the point of the long and temporarily sorrowful discipline that God promises in Hebrews 12 to every child whom He loves and to every son whom He receives into His presence. The point of the judgments of God and the lives of His people is to bring us fully into the blessedness of thanksgiving and celebration as those who have been made fit to dwell with Him in the place that He prepared for us. He will be our God, and we will be His people. And He Himself will dwell in our midst forever. That, beloved, is the point. That's the point of God's entire plan of redemption that spans the thousands of years from the fall of Adam to the eternal kingdom of God's Messiah. There are many manifestations at that point along the way. But in the end, this promise is fulfilled in perfection and for all eternity. The central promise and unifying theme of the Word of God from beginning to end is Emmanuel. God with us. Now if you believe that, what will you do with that glorious truth? Will you and I keep it to ourselves? Will we speak of it only to those who already trust in Him and belong to Him? Or will we speak of it to anyone who will listen and even to those who won't? Our present culture, including the supposedly Christian culture of the modern evangelical church, tells us more and more forcefully all the time not to talk about judgment to talk instead about grace and love and tolerance I hope and pray that through the words of God given to us by the hand of Jeremiah we are coming to understand more and more that we can't talk about the grace of God without talking about the judgments of God this side of glory our God is a consuming fire The fire of both His Word and His judgments is purposed to return the hearts of His people back to Himself. In His presence alone is fullness of joy. At His right hand there are pleasures forever. You and I do not know who will respond in faith to either His Word or His temporal judgments, but we are to speak of both To all men in order that many may be saved. We're to call sinful rebellion against God exactly what it is. Sinful rebellion against God. No matter what the world calls it, no matter what most other Christians call it, Isaiah said, woe to him who calls, who calls good evil and evil good. And we are to say, as God says, that such rebellion is met with painful judgment from God. And we are to proclaim that those whose hearts are not turned to God and faith through His Word and His judgments will be judged forever. But beloved, we are to be very clear about the restorative purpose of God's judgments toward all who trust in His Son. You know how a human being can go from having the hard and painful things in his life move from condemning him to blessing him? By trusting in Jesus Christ. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. The day that I got saved when my high school biology teacher cornered me at 16 years of old and asked me if I died, if I was on my way home that night and got in a car crash and died, what would I say to God if He asked me what right I have to enter into His holy presence? I said, I'd tell Him I did the best I could and I hope it was good enough. And He said, wrong answer. And He told me the right answer and He showed me that God calls us to childlike faith to trust Him for a righteousness that doesn't come from us and to believe that He alone makes us right with Him. When He brought me to faith that night, when God brought me to faith that night, one of the first things that He showed me after that was that all the pain of this life life is used by Him to bless. And to turn my heart and the hearts of all of His people to ever, ever toward Him. And that's not once and done. That's something that God is at work to do all the time in our lives. And it's beautiful, and it's blessed, and it's gracious. And it's what we get to declare to other people. When he showed me, when Mike Turnage, my biology teacher, showed me Romans 3, starting with the fact that there's no one righteous, no one good, no one who seeks after God. Then showing me that the the righteousness of God only comes to us by tr- trusting in the righteous one, Jesus Christ, and then t- showing me that, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. What happened to me was amazing because in that instant, at that day, uh, that night, within minutes, it was the first time in my life I could look my sin square in the face and say, yep, that's me. Lost, dead, helpless, condemned. It was the kindness of God that led me to repentance. It was the grace of God combined with the declaration of His judgment against me that finally allowed me to recognize that that judgment was real. And so when we proclaim, when we proclaim the judgments of God, beloved, no matter who we're talking to, we must also proclaim the gracious purpose of God in judgment for all who trust in His Son. We have the beautiful assignment to tell every man, woman, and child that a response of childlike faith in Jesus will make every painful and sorrowful thing that they have ever experienced or ever will experience in this life an instrument in the hand of God that will bring them into blessedness, into the blessedness of dwelling in the very presence of God together with all His redeemed forever and ever. Dear Father, we thank you for these precious and magnificent promises. We thank you for the redeeming purpose of your judgments, this side of glory. We thank you for the storms that humble us before you and that turn our hearts back to you to enjoy the blessings of fellowship with you, together with all of your people, right now and forever. And we thank you, Father, that it is only the blood of Christ that makes this marvelous salvation ours. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.